I'm Deborah Grace, author of the book Crucifying the Bible, available on Amazon, and you're listening to the Tall Friendly Atheist Dad podcast. Hey guys, this is Justin from The Prince of Memegypt. You can find me on Instagram and Facebook at The Prince of Memegypt and on Twitter at Internet Moses. You're listening to Damien, the Tall Friendly Atheist Dad, on the Tall Friendly Atheist Dad podcast, guaranteed to be gluten free. Ten Reasons to Reject the Resurrection Some time back, crossexamine.org, the child of Frank Turek, put out a blog post titled Ten Reasons to Accept the Resurrection of Jesus as an Historical Fact by Brian Chilton, who writes, When I left the ministry due to my scepticism, one of the factors involved in my departure concerned the reliability of the New Testament documents and the resurrection of Jesus. The folks from the Jesus Seminar had me second-guessing whether I could trust what the New Testament said and if I could truly accept the literal bodily resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. In July of 2005, my life changed. I entered the Lifeway Christian Bookstore in Winston-Salem, North Carolina and read three books that changed my life more than any other book outside the Bible. I discovered Lee Strobel's The Case for Christ, Josh McDowell's The New Evidence That Demands a Verdict, and McDowell's A Ready Defense. I discovered that there are many reasons for accepting the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth as historical fact. So Brian Chilton has listed 10 reasons why he believes we can accept the resurrection of Jesus Christ as an historical fact. I've had a read thinking, whoa, is my atheism about to be debunked? Will I have to go to church on Sunday? What will happen next? What will happen to my podcast? I can't be the tall, friendly atheist dad if I'm not an atheist. So I had a read through. And these are my responses. Number one. The first eyewitnesses of the resurrection were women. All the Gospels note that the first individuals to discover the tomb empty were women. Matthew notes that, after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week was dawning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to view the tomb. The angel told the women, Don't be afraid, because I know you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay, Matthew 28 1, 5 6. Women were not held in high esteem. In Greco Roman culture, a woman's testimony was not admissible in court. In Jewish circles, it took the testimony of two women to equate that of one man. If one were to invent a story, the last people one would place as the first witnesses would have been women unless it were otherwise true. The first eyewitnesses were women. 
according to whom? You see, if you accept the Gospels as Gospel truth, then yes. But this then becomes inherently circular. The story of the Gospels are true. Why? Because women were the first eyewitnesses. How do you know that? It says so in the Gospels. The next problem? What did the women do after they saw Jesus? In Mark 16.8, Jesus told the women to go tell Peter. However, they said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Then in 16.11, the disciples didn't believe the women. And then in 16.12, Jesus appeared to two others who didn't believe what they were seeing either. So in Mark, not even Jesus appearing could convince the disciples until later on. Not to mention the fact that Mark had two different endings tacked on at various stages. If we go to Luke, only Peter believes the women. In Matthew, the women don't report to anyone. And in John, it is simply Mary, not the women collectively, that tells the disciples. And the only thing that the women do in the Gospels is report back to the disciples. The women do not go and tell the general public. Further, every time the Gospel is preached in Acts, or when the Apostles, the Apostoloi, are sent, at no stage is it mentioned that women were the first to witness the resurrection. The Apostles talk about the resurrection, but they never go, Hmm, this Jesus who was resurrected then revealed himself to multiple women who ran away screaming and crying. And that sounds pretty bad when I say it like that. Sorry. And in the 1 Corinthians 15 creed that gets trotted out as proof that the early Christians believed in the resurrection, that early creed mentions nothing about first appearing to women. Second, it is only the Gospels that report that women discovered the empty tomb. Paul makes absolutely no mention of this prescient fact. So between 33 CE and 70 CE, to be generous to Mark, we have no mention of women discovering Jesus' empty tomb. If this was such an important fact, to the extent that one of the most prominent apologist organizations lists it as their number one piece of evidence, why wasn't it mentioned for at least 37 years? So even if you wanted to rest this first reason on assuming the truth of the gospel, the rest of the Bible just doesn't make any sense. For example, in 1 Corinthians 15, the first post-resurrection appearances Jesus makes are to Peter, and then to the twelve, and at no stage are women mentioned among the five hundred. And third, what would women being the first eyewitnesses establish? That they're not making it up? Well, this is a non sequitur, because we know that people, regardless of gender, lie. And if your argument is that the society of the time was indeed so highly misogynist that it devalued women to the point that it's incredulous that a new religious movement would gain credibility by making up the fact that women were the first to witness the one fact that underpins the faith? Then we have to ask, 
if the Jews believed they were God's chosen people and they created a highly misogynistic society in the first place, what does that say about the God whose rules they were trying to follow? And besides, name me one fact in history that has stood or has fallen on the basis that it was women who reported it. But lastly, all of the above points are meaningful if and only if you accept the Gospels as Gospel truth in the first place. Number 2 Gary Habermas has popularized the so-called minimal facts argument for the resurrection. The minimal facts are those things that are accepted by nearly all New Testament scholars. The minimal facts are 1. Jesus died by crucifixion. 2. Jesus' disciples believed that he rose and appeared to them. 3. The church persecutor Paul was suddenly changed. 4. The skeptic James, brother of Jesus, was suddenly changed. And 5. The tomb was empty. These facts are nearly universally accepted by New Testament scholars, including liberals. This point is more to do with the fact that one person has cited a group of people and their respective positions in order to determine the validity of a set of claims, rather than the veracity of the claims themselves. Sure, you could try make a minimal facts resurrection case, in the same way a like-minded group of scholars could make a minimal facts case about Moroni and the Golden Plates. Underpinning this hypothetical apologetic of minimal facts Mormonism would be the clear and unavoidable fact that Joseph Smith existed. Distinct and independent documentation from the life of Smith survives to this day. But I think most damaging of all is this point. Gary Habermas is employed by Liberty University an organisation admittedly dedicated to making people biblically literal Christians. Now, this isn't an ad hominem. What it is, is to do with intellectual honesty. Because let's ask, if Gary Habermas revisited the question of the historical Jesus and came to the conclusion that Jesus Christ was a myth, would he still have a job there? And again, the minimal facts resurrection relies on accepting the veracity of the gospel accounts. Why, oh, why does nobody question the gospels? Number three. As noted in the minimal facts, James, the brother of Jesus, was changed from a skeptic to a believer because of the resurrection. James, along with his brothers, did not believe in Jesus during Jesus' early ministry. See John 7 5. However, Jesus appeared to James, 1 Corinthians 15 3 9, and James became a leader in the early Jerusalem church. His death is recorded by Josephus. Paul is another example of one who was completely transformed by the resurrection of Jesus. Paul had been a persecutor of the church. After witnessing the risen Jesus, Paul became a proclaimer for the church. And yet again, this argument relies entirely on the circular argument of accepting the gospel accounts and acts at face value. The Bible is true. 
Why do you say that? The disciples believe Jesus rose from the dead. How do we know that? The disciples said so. And where does it say that? In the Bible! There also seems to be no external corroboration that James, or any of the other disciples, were initially unbelievers and then converted. Everything we have on the matter comes from religious documents promoting an orthodoxy. We do happen to have a handful of verses in the Bible where some of Jesus' family don't believe in his messianic mission, which actually more implies that itinerant Jewish prophets were a dime a dozen, and there is only one person who admits straight out that they were an unbeliever initially, the Apostle Paul. The problem? He literally hallucinated a Jesus, and he never mentions any specific facts about Jesus' time on earth. Regarding James's death, we get two conflicting accounts. Either James died in approximately 64 CE by order of Nanus ben Ananus, as per Josephus, or he died in 68 CE by being thrown off the temple pinnacle, as per Clement. Number 4 Historically speaking, embarrassing details add veracity to a historical claim. The fact that women were the first witnesses, that a member of the Sanhedrin, the same Sanhedrin that executed Jesus, had to give Jesus a proper burial, and that the disciples were fearful and fled, all serve as embarrassing factors for the resurrection account. Ah yes, the, the good old criterion of embarrassment. The problem with the criterion of embarrassment is that it is only used in Christian apologetics. In no other field of historical research does the criterion of embarrassment get trotted out. And really, let's think about it. If we apply the criterion of embarrassment to other religions, we would then have to accept that Buddhism is true because Siddhartha Gautama left a life of luxury. Because, like, you know, who would do that? That Scientology is true because you're admitting that you've been affected by body thetans. That Joseph Smith is telling the truth because he describes being rebuked by Moroni for not initially trusting the divine guidance he was given. Or that the ancient cult of Attis and Sibel, as described by Plutarch, is true because who would willingly run down the street in drag, screaming and cutting off their penises? Number five. Many people will die for what they believe to be true, but no one will die for something they erroneously invented. The disciples knew if they were telling the truth. Yet, one finds that the disciples were willing to die for what they knew to be true. Stephen died by stoning, as per Acts 7:54-60. James of Zebedee died by the sword at the hands of Herod, as per Acts 12, verse 2. James the brother of Jesus died, and Peter and Paul died at the hands of Nero. But no one will die for something they erroneously invented. Brian probably hasn't kept up to speed with how Joseph Smith died. Joseph Smith was killed while awaiting trial for defending Mormonism. He probably also doesn't know how Muhammad, the prophet of Islam, died. Muhammad was fed a poison lamb by a tribe that was negotiating surrender with his army, and he eventually died from the effects. 
Or to use a couple of more modern examples, Jim Jones, he died by gunshot at his compound in Guyana, in Jonestown. Or David Koresh. David Koresh died in a shootout with police. So, I mean, if anyone was in a position to know that what they were preaching was erroneously invented, it was these men. Number six. The documentary evidence for the resurrection of Jesus is quite good. The historian seeks to find how many primary and secondary sources can be gathered for an event to determine the event's historicity. Concerning primary sources, the resurrection has Matthew's account, John's account, and Paul's account in 1 Corinthians 15, including the additional references by James, if one accepts that James wrote the letter attributed to him, and Jude. The following are secondary sources for the resurrection, Luke, Mark, Clement of Rome, and to a lesser degree, Ignatius and Irenaeus. The historian seeks to find how many primary and secondary sources can be gathered for an event to determine the event's historicity. The good historian not only looks for how many primary and secondary sources there are for something, but also the veracity of those sources. I'm sure we could find numerous sources claiming that the miracle of Fatima happened, but we all know it didn't. The good historian also has a method for determining fact from opinion from myth, and also tries to cross-reference sources to get a better look at the picture. But is the documentary evidence for Jesus' resurrection quite good? No. Documentary evidence for belief in the resurrection is quite good, but believing something isn't the same as proving it happened. Number 7. Douglas Scrutheus notes that circumstantial evidence for the historicity of the resurrection is, namely, the practice of the early church in observing baptism, the Lord's Supper, and Sunday worship. Baptism is based upon the analogy of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. The Lord's Supper is a symbol of Christ's sacrificial death. In addition, it is quite odd that faithful Jews would move their worship from a Friday evening into Saturday to a Sunday morning unless something major had occurred on the Sunday morning. The major Sunday morning event was Jesus' resurrection. The short form of this argument is that the early church believed it, therefore it's true. Brian does mention the shift of the Sabbath from Friday to Sunday, the day of worship didn't immediately change to Sunday right after Jesus rose. And what the article doesn't take into consideration is that baptism, and especially the idea of baptism either washing away sins or enjoining us to the death of Christ in order to participate in the resurrection of Christ, is strictly a New Testament idea. Yes, ceremonial purification by water was an Old Testament idea, and one that Jesus directly challenged, but baptism as a means of washing away sin? That is New Testament only, and has pagan parallels. Or one more is the Eucharist. Again, the idea of symbolic cannibalism is a novel theology. The idea of eating the flesh of someone, however symbolic, has parallels with the Dionysus cult. Chew on that.
Number 8. J. Warner Wallace has noted in his lectures and books that when a conspiracy is formed, three motivating factors are behind such a move, power, greed, and all lust. The disciples would hold no power behind claiming the resurrection as history. They were running around while often being threatened by the Jewish and Roman authorities. As far as greed, they taught that one should not desire earthly possessions, but spiritual ones. Lust was not a factor, either. They taught celibacy before marriage and marital fidelity after marriage. In fact, N.T. Wright notes in his classic book, The Resurrection of the Son of God, that the disciples had no theological motivation behind claiming that Jesus had risen from the dead as they were anticipating a military hero and a final resurrection at the end of time. What motivating factors existed for these disciples to invent such a story? None. The only reason the disciples taught the resurrection of Jesus was because Jesus' resurrection had occurred. This completely misses the fact that Christianity was simply an update to Jewish theology that grew legs. First after the Roman-Jewish War in 70 CE, and then once again after Constantine used Christianity as a political tool to try unite the Western and Eastern Roman empires. It's not like someone invented Christianity out of whole cloth. There were Jewish antecedents to Christianity. It doesn't have to be a conspiracy for it to be wrong. People could have earnestly believed in this Judaism 2.0 without it necessarily being an elaborate and deliberate lie. For example, in Vanuatu, there is a Prince Philip movement. Now, I don't think those people in the southern islands of Vanuatu are lying. I just think they're deceived. And yet again, I'm going to refer back to the cult of Attis and Sibel. Men cutting off their penises is the ultimate in denying themselves lust. Does this lend credence to their beliefs? If that doesn't lend credence to their beliefs, then the Christian argument shouldn't lend credence to the Christian beliefs. Remember, what's good for the goose is good for the giraffe. One should not desire earthly possessions. Which is exactly how cult leaders become rich and powerful. You don't need those earthly possessions. Let me take care of them for you. Number 9. Historically speaking, if one holds enemy attestation to an event, then the event is strengthened. When one considers the claims of the authorities that the disciples had stolen the body of Jesus, Matthew 28:11-15, the testimony of the resurrection is strengthened. The early belief that the disciples had stolen the body of Jesus is strengthened by the discovery of the Nazareth inscription that orders capital punishment for anyone who steals a body from a tomb. In addition, several references to Jesus and his resurrection include citations from Josephus, Tacitus, and Suetonius among others, including the Babylonian Talmud. Jesus rose from the dead because the Romans outlawed grave robbery? The reference to the Nazareth inscription as evidence that Jesus rose from the dead doesn't hold water, and for a few reasons. And with the other references, the best they do is mention Christians, who no one disputes existed. But Brian does reference sources such as Tacitus and the Babylonian Talmud. 
So let me quickly see what they have to say. In Claudius 25, Suetonius writes, Since the Jews had made disturbances at the instigation of Crestus, they were expelled from Rome. This line has been used over and over again by apologists to confirm both that Christians were persecuted and that it was for the cause of Jesus Christ. But this doesn't add up, and for a couple of reasons. Mostly because the Latin word used in this sentence, imposore, is used to indicate someone who was there on the scene leading the instigation. So, unless Jesus died, went to heaven, came back to earth, went to Rome, and then led a ragtag bunch of Jews to cause havoc, I don't think Crestus is our guy. And the Babylonian Talmud? Well, there is a passage in the Babylonian Talmud where a diviner writes about Jesus being sent to hell to be boiled in excrement. So I'm not sure that's our Jesus. Or there's another passage in Sanhedrin 103a, which mentions a Jesus who burns his food in public, i.e. sacrificing to idols or apostasy. So I don't think that's our Jesus there. Or Sanhedrin 107b, where Jesus turns to idolatry after his teacher is accused of heresy. And again, I don't think that's our Jesus there either. So what I'm trying to say is that whenever a Christian tells you about non-biblical confirmation of Jesus, always look at the source. Because most of the time, it doesn't say what apologists thinks it's saying. Number 10. Finally, there is multiple eyewitness testimony pertaining to the resurrection of Jesus. Several people had seen Jesus alive for a period of 40 days. The eyewitnesses include Mary Magdalene, John 20, verses 10 to 18, the women at the tomb accompanying Mary, Matthew 28 verses 1 to 10, the Roman guards, Matthew 28 verse 4, the 11 disciples, John chapter 21, the two men on the road to Emmaus, Luke 24 verses 13 to 35, an indeterminate number of disciples, Matthew 28 verses 16 to 20, over 500 disciples, 1 Corinthians 15 verse 6, to James, 1 Corinthians 15 verse 7, and to Paul, 1 Corinthians 15 verses 8 to 9. I am certain that there were many other witnesses that are unnamed. Again, if you trust the Bible as 100% inerrant, sure, multiple people saw Jesus. And if you believe the Book of Mormon as 100% inerrant, you'll accept that the Nephites and the Lamanites inhabited pre-colonial America. And that 1 Corinthians 15 verse, there's a couple of things to note. First, is that it says, Jesus appeared to, using the Greek word for appear, meaning an experience or an apparition, not that the disciples saw. Second, what Paul writes was that Jesus died and rose again according to Scripture. His source, that all this happened, was the Scriptures, not a real-life recounting. Because in Galatians 1.12, Paul affirms that no one taught him his gospel, nor did he investigate or rely on people. 
he learnt everything directly from the source, which is scripture and revelation. So the way Paul learnt about the gospel was going back through the Old Testament scriptures or what Jesus revealed to him personally, not by talking to disciples or eyewitnesses. And besides, the 500 witnesses thing? That is one report of 500 people, not 500 separate individual accounts. Now, having said all this, there may well have been a Jesus, but I doubt very highly that he rose from the dead, and he definitely wasn't a son of God. I think he was just a very naughty boy.